Thank you, William. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be back in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you notice, uh, we have, uh, the last time we, we were together and we, we spoke about this, and uh, before I get into that, let me just say I appreciate the great job that Bob Gregg did last week and, uh, and filling in for me, and I appreciate all the guys that can step up and, and take this pulpit. That he did an exceptional job, and I want to thank him for that. And, uh, for everything that everybody did and making last Sunday go well when we were not, the whole family wasn't here. But um, so the last time we were together, we, uh, we had talked about uh, the great perspective of, of, of seeing things the way they really are, not how they appear. We have been building steadily in Second Corinthians chapter 10, which, by the way, you know now, should know now, that each chapter of Second Corinthians talks about a different aspect of you and I as ministers of the gospel. And though not all of you may be pastors, but all of you are ministers, and our job is to minister the Word of God. And a pastor is an office, but every child of God that's saved needs to be a minister and minister the Word of God. And we have been talking about why people uh, think the way that they think, why people say the things that they say, and why people do the things that they do. That's one of the most profound concepts if you ever grasp it of why things are the way they are. I showed you uh, the last time we were together, and we've been building on this in a progression, talking about different aspects to kind of bring a whole picture into, into view here. But last time we talked about, uh, you know, why things are the way they are today in Christianity. And I told you simply that uh, based on where I've come from and what I know Christianity to be, uh, compared to what it is today, I, I, I think you better understand now why I say what I say when I think that many Christians who claim to be saved have really never been saved. And we know now the great study of the tale of two churches, the Laodicean church uh, and the Philadelphian church. The Philadelphian church, as I said the last time we were together, was the church of the open door. It was a church where three-quarters of the world had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There was nothing more than the King James Bible going around the world four or five times. And yet, as we entered into the 20th century, we moved into, as we see of our chart, and have talked about it many times, the Laodicean church period. The Laodicea means rights of the people. And it's a time where God has no rights and Christians have all the rights. It's a time where, as Philadelphia was the church of the open door, Laodicea is the church of the closed door. And I've always thought it was interesting that in the book of Colossians. Colossians is a book where he really lays out in the New Testament every aspect of the Laodicean church. It's, a, it's an incredible little book. And, uh, and most people don't know this, but Colossia was, was a city, and 11 miles south of that city was Laodicea. It was just 11 miles south of that great city that the book of Colossians is written about. And I've often thought that was such a great book to pick to talk about and describe Laodicea because we all live, I live in Raytown, we, our church is in Independence, but the problem we have here, we always don't know where you're in Independence or Kansas City. I think, if I'm, somebody can correct me on this, I think that, that this church, I know this church is in Independence, but I think right down the road you're in Kansas City. And I know that when you go from, I know going from in Raytown, 
man, you can go down you can go down any road on the edge and you can be in and out of Kansas City and back into Raytown and not even know where you're at. And I've always thought that was interesting that he chose the book of Colossians to define the book of Laodicea, which was a city 11 miles south. And I think the value in that for all of us today is just as you cannot only tell unless you have a sign says leaving Raytown and entering Kansas City or leaving Independence and entering Kansas City or whatever. You can move into those city districts and not even know you've crossed over the line. And Laodicea being so close to the book of Colossians shows me very carefully that we as Christians can move out of the mainstream of what God wants us to be in the Laodicea very easily, unless you follow the signs. And of course, the signs are the Word of God. We've talked about the appearance of things versus the way things appear in Christianity. That's true of churches. It's also true of Christians. Christians appear to be one thing by their statements, but then they are actually something else by their actions. And uh, we now know that, as we talked about that Sunday, that we have basically, for the last hundred-some years, fabricated and brought about a Christianity that, as we saw last time we were together, never really existed in the Bible. The thing that I struggle with is I don't see Christians in the New Testament like I see running around today. They made a choice, and their life was different. I'm not saying they didn't struggle with things, but you don't see this that I'm saved, but I go out and do the things that I did before I was saved on a continual lifestyle basis. I I told you Thursday night, somebody asked a question. I even forget what it was now, but it kind of dialed into what we're talking about And I said that uh, today in Christianity, it's just like it was in the nation of Israel right before the captivity came down. They had a form of godliness, the Bible says. They They had the temples, they had the priesthood, they had everything that they were supposed to have except God. They had themselves fabricated out of Baal worship and all the other nations that came in that God told them to stay away from. They had now fabricated in 606 B.C., a complete religion that on the outside looked like it was everything that it was supposed to be, but on the inside, well, Jesus said it himself in the book of Matthew, didn't it? He said on the outside, you, you, you look like a whited sepulchers, but on the inside is dead man bones. And that was Israel. And that's Christianity today. Oh, and this is where we're at. And this is why it's so important to understand. This is the situation we find ourselves in today. And I said it last time we were together, living in a Christian world where values and doctrines continually change, but holding on to the book that never changes. Somebody sent me a photo of a large church in Kansas City. Uh, and I won't bring up what church it was, but they had sent me on my phone uh, a, a picture of an auditorium of a, of, a, of a church that this church at one point was probably uh, really preached, it did, it really preached the gospel. It came out of J. Frank Norris back in the old days, and it was a solid, solid Bible preaching church for many, many years. And um, they sent me a picture of the auditorium, which now has completely been remodeled. Uh, no more place for the choir, not that you need one, but everything is taken out, and now you have flickering lights, the, the drummer's in a little cubicle all by himself with the, with the singers and the banjo players, the guitar players and the thing and the praise people, and it is, an, it, the, the lights, uh, it's like TV camera lights coming down. It's absolutely just like the world. There's a reason why this pulpit is in the center. I don't know if you even know it or not. 
And for years and years and years in, in Baptist churches, the pulpit's always in the center. You go to Episcopalian church, or you go to a, a Lutheran church, or you go to a Presbyterian church. Uh, if you watch the news this week, when Obama went up to uh, uh, Boston, he spoke in that church. Did you notice how the pulpit was over to the side? That's typical of Protestant churches. But Baptist churches always put the pulpit in the middle. They do that out of the book of Nehemiah where Nehemiah built a pulpit of wood and he stood upon it and he opened the word of God and all the people stood up and he preached to the people. So for time and eternity, Bible-believing Baptists have always had the pulpit in the center. You know why? Because they want you to know that for the center of that church was the preaching of the word of God out of Nehemiah. They don't even have pulpits today. They sit on stools now with cardigan sweaters <laughs> and they talk to you and teach you. I'm going to leave the stool joke alone here and just move on with the sermon this morning. <laughs> now, today we're going to look at another passage and see yet another great aspect of the mind of the minister. I think this sermon today is going to be so helpful for so many of you. I've been wanting to preach. I've had this sermon ready for two weeks. Couldn't preach it last week. But I think this sermon will help so many of you today. These are one of these sermons that you really want to get it down. This will benefit everybody. This is not a ranting, raving sermon that I can do so well. This is, this is more of a thing where you're going to get something today. Well, you get something every week, but I mean, you're going to, you're going to, this is going to be good for many of you today. I think you're going, to get a, you're going to get what you need out of this. Well, let me begin reading here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, and it says this, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reach not unto you, for we are come as far as uh, to you also preaching the gospel of Christ." not boast of good things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that ye shall be enlarged by your according to the rule abundantly, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things. Be ready uh, to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord, for not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Now, Father, Help us today to glean from this what you have for us. These are your people here today. They're good people. They really love you. They've come today to get something from the Word of God, and I certainly have nothing to give them. So, Lord, I pray that you'll intervene here, that, that your Spirit will take the text, take the message, and, and take me, Lord, and, and give them uh, out of my mouth what you'd want them to hear. We'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to talk today about something that almost everybody does here. You young Christians do it. You older Christians do it also. And uh, I, I, I got to be honest with you, I, 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 I've never fallen into this. I've fallen into a lot of things as a young Christian that uh, uh, got me off track, but I never fell into this. But I see this in so many of you, and especially you younger Christians, and I want to talk to you about making comparisons today. I want to talk about comparing yourself with other Christians. You know, I think that, as I said, this will be a great help to many of you today. Now, verse 12 says, if you look at it again for a moment, 
that measuring our spiritual life by comparing it to other Christians is not a wise thing to do. And that is so true. Yet, I won't tell you, I see people do that all the time. All the time. And uh, now, but let me explain. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong with following good Christian leadership or good Christian example. I'm not talking about that. Uh, On Easter Sunday, I preached you a message on patterns and what the pattern was for a really good Christian. And we talked about pattern of good works and a pattern of sound speech. Nothing wrong with following those examples. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he told the Corinthians to be ye followers of me, even as I'm followers of Christ. It's never wrong to learn from other people. You learn what they do well, and you apply it to your life, but you also learn what they don't do well and apply it to your life. But my point is this, you will never get, you as a Christian, you will never get the true value of who you really are as long as you compare yourself to other people. Follow their examples. When you see good things in their life, emulate them. Wanted that in your life. But you never come to the point where you ever, ever compare yourself to them. Many Christians, especially young Christians, have a tough time with this. And, in, and i got to say, in most cases, it's a legitimate problem. Legitimate from the standpoint that, uh, I mean... You, you, see, uh, you see somebody you, uh, that you really admire and they really do a good job and maybe they're farther on down the line than you are, uh, but save a longer time. And uh, you see some Christian who you think is what you want to be like. And then uh, a comparison just happens. And in every case, when you do that, you're going to wind up defeating yourself. When you pick another Christian to compare yourself with, or anybody to compare yourself with, you'll find out in time that they have the same issues that you have. And when you put all of your, your, your trust in that and put all of your value in that, you're going to be defeated because uh, you need to set your sights higher than that. You just really do. Uh, I, I would tell you this anytime, uh, anytime, day or night, if any of you look to me as an example, and uh, I, would, I would urge you to follow a couple basic rules, or anybody. Hey, there are some great models in this church of parenting. There are some great models in this church of what a marriage should be. There are some great models in this church of what a Christian walk should be. But I'm telling you right now, whether it's me and you look at my life or you look at somebody else's life, simply follow a couple of rules. First rule is this. Know that I am a saved man. And the things that I do that are good things for the Lord, then follow them. And, you know, use them as an example to help you. But at the rule number two, but at the same time, know that I'm human and I have the same old nature as you got. So the things that I don't do well, the things that I don't do right, the things in my life that, that, uh, uh, where I fail, uh, you, you learn from them too. You learn not to do those things. But don't ever try to compare yourself to me or anybody because simply you're not me and you're simply not the other person. I, I see parents make this mistake. All through my years of, of dealing with parents, I've seen them make this mistake. They'll have three or four kids, and they'll have one kid that really exceeds and does well and maybe have a couple others that don't do quite as well, and they'll use that child who excels to compare the rest of the kids to. And you'll hear things like, why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like your sister? My sister was a genius, still is. She graduated from high school when she was a junior. 
That's how smart she was. And she's a, she's a, she's a, she's a brilliant woman. She really is. And me, on the other hand, I was the dumb as a stump. I mean, I, when she got straight A's all the time and I get D's all the time. My day, my crowning day would, I got a C in something, you know, and, uh, and I never forget all my life. I've heard whenever I got, I dreaded report card day back then, you know, you had to, you took it. It was a big thing. You couldn't hide it. <laughs> and and every, all the parents knew it was report card day. You know why? Because we all got quiet about two weeks before. Everybody knew it. And, uh, and, and back then, they actually put the, the grade, A, B, C, D, E, F, and F was always in red. So it, it, even if your parents didn't see well, the red stood out from the block. And I, and I got Fs. In fact, I had to go to summer school when I was in the uh, seventh grade or eighth grade going into being a freshman and because uh, I flunked math. I was terrible in math. I, I still am. That's why I, I don't do anything with math. I don't need to. Uh, my car tells me how much gas I got before I run out, how many miles I got. I don't have to figure anything anymore. I, I, I feel sorry for all you dopes who went and, and struggled taking algebra and, <laughs> algebra and ge- geometry and Gibraltar and all that other stuff that you took. Have you ever used it since you got out? No. You're none of you are a rocket scientist. None of you come to the place where you got to do formal equations on this or that. No, you don't do it any more than I do. And besides that, right after I got out of school, they made calculators. Man, I tell you what, that ticked me off. I heard all of my life, why can't you be like your sister? Why can't you be like your sister on report card day? She'd get straight A's. And I got to say, I love my sister. We get along great. But back then, we didn't get along quite as well. And she would rub my nose in the fact. I got all A's. And I, and I would tell her what A stood for, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> but, but parents do that all the time. And, and that is always going to cause you issues. Every child you have is different than the other child. And trying to hold an expectation for the other kids by the one who excels when the other one doesn't, your kid's going to turn out like me. <laughs> Don't take away from them who they are, see? I mean, you just can't. And I've seen, I've seen pastors and their sons make the same mistake. You'll see a pastor who was a great pastor or a great preacher, and his son comes along, and he wants to get into the ministry, but he's nowhere near what his dad was. Everybody expects that young kid to be what his dad was. And I've seen young man after young man after young man Crash and burn in the ministry because everybody was holding him to the expectation of his daddy. And he wasn't his dad. He had to be who he was. I never compare you younger Christians with older Christians. I mean, being different is not bad. I, I never look at somebody and say, I wish you were like that. I wish you were like other Christians who do the job here with me. I've learned to let people define themselves as who they are. You're all different. You all have different personalities. You all grew up in different environments with different backgrounds. And uh, that allows all of you to see things differently. And being different is not bad in the right scenario. Each one of you is unique in your own way. And that makes each of you valuable to God and to me in a different way. It just makes you special. Not, and I never look at, at somebody who really can preach well and look at somebody who maybe struggles and says, well, I wish that that person was like this person. I know many of you do that. Many of you look at guys that can preach or guys that do well, and you, you get defeated because you want to do that too. 
I'm not saying that someday you can't or won't, but I am saying if you never get there, I promise you God's got something just as special for you as it does for anybody you want to compare yourself to. Every one of you have special abilities. Not everybody has the same ability. Uh, but who you are and what you can do will, will, will blend it into our work here uh, to get the job done. I never allow myself to wish you were like so and so. I always see you as God made you and help you develop who you are to be exactly what God wants you to be. And I never, I never fall into that trap. I use it in everything in my life. I got three of the sweetest grandkids on the whole planet. I got Macy, I got Maddie, and I got Kinsey. And, uh, uh, you know, how do you, uh, I mean, you look at all three of them, and, and somebody asked me one time, which one's your favorite? You know, that's a legitimate question, but that's a, that question makes me mad a little bit. Uh, not mad at the person, but mad because I got to think that way. I don't want to think that way. So I worked a way around it, you see. Somebody says, which one's your favorite? And I say, well, uh, Maddie's my favorite oldest one. <laughs> Kinsey's my favorite middle one, and Macy's my favorite younger one. Now, see that? I separated them out. I can love each one of them and make each one of them my favorite without ever violating anything. I do that with my two daughters. <laughs> and people ask me for, which one do you love the most? And I say, well, I love Kelly because she, I love Kelly as my oldest daughter the most, and Jamie because she's my youngest daughter the most. It, it eliminates anything that goes in there. <laughs> I had three labs one time. All three colors. Tinker was black. Buddy was brown, and Daisy was yellow. And they were, and, and they were the sweetest three dogs in the world. And, and, and people would ask me all the time, which one of them is your favorite? And you see, I get mad when people ask me. Not because you asked me, but because I got to now, you put me in a position to choose. So I figured it out, too. Which one's your favorite? Well, Tinker's my favorite black lab. Buddy's my favorite brown lab, and Daisy's my favorite yellow lab. See? I violated nothing. I'm happy. I have my favorites because each one of them are different. Both of my girls are different. Both, all three of my grandkids are different. All, four of my, all three of my dogs were different. I didn't include Otis in it because he's a rat with a genetic defect. I'm not even sure he's a dog. <laughs> You're all special. Everybody brings something to the party. Who you are, your individuality, is who God made you to be. You don't ever want to compare that with anybody else. Be you. Be satisfied with being you. Job chapter 37 verse 7 says, uh, He sealeth up the hand of every man. Now I know that that's how uh, a guy by the name of... Uh, I can't remember his last name. He did it in the 20s. The guy that uh, developed the fingerprints all being different. He got it out of that verse right there. The Bible says he sealed up the hand of every man. So from that, uh, that's Job 37, 7. From that, uh, he realized that everybody's fingerprints was different. And he come up with the code for fingerprints that were all different. And everybody's fingerprints are different, just like there's no two snowflakes are like. And the guy who made the snowflakes is the same guy who made your finger. But I take it one step further. In the Bible, hands are what you do the ministry with. 
not only is it true that your fingerprints are different, but when he says he sealed up the hand of every man, he's also telling you you're all different in what you do for him. He sealed Gary's hands different than he did Bob's or he did Norbert's. Every man's man is different. He sealed them up. He's got something he wants you to do, and it's never going to all be the same. All of you have some very special things God has given you. Don't settle. Don't settle for less. And if you don't see them, come and ask me. I'll tell you what they are. I probably do see them. I've heard it all the time. Well, I'm not as pretty as her. I'm not as smart as him. I wish I could do what they do. I'll never be like that. I wish I could speak like him. Hey, be who God wants you to be. You see it in the four gospels. In the, in, the, in the theological world, we have a problem with the gospels. It's called the synoptic gospels. The synoptic problem. Now, synoptic is a big $25 word. It simply means that the gospels don't match. In fact, uh, you get into higher theologians and scholars, they'll tell you that in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke belong, but John doesn't belong. So they throw John out and say that that's not a legitimate gospel. You know why they do that? Because of the synoptic problem. Those first three kind of match, but John doesn't match. But when you study it even farther, none of them really match. You'll find it in some books. One of them will tell the story, and there'll be two guys involved in the story. And then the next guy will tell the same story, and there'll be one guy involved in it. And then lo and behold, the next guy tells it, and there's, a, there's a two, a two guys that you had and plus somebody else. When you read Luke, read, if you read Luke, his, his, his long sentences, he, his grammar is almost perfect, textbook, Greek grammar. But when you get into, uh, get into John, it's choppy, it's short. It's the difference between a guy who was a trained professional physician and a commercial fisherman. You know what God allowed them? He used them. Holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, but the Holy Ghost that moved them allowed them to always be who they were in their personalities. He didn't make them all the same. He used them the way they were. He don't want us to all be the same. I don't want you all to be the same. I want you to be who God wants you to be. I want you to let God develop the abilities that God has given you. You remember from our past studies, I've told you before, it's not on the outside that counts or what you do, but it's what's on the inside that counts. And that's where we're all equal, brethren, because we all have the same amount of the Holy Spirit of God in us. Now, I say that, but then I'm going to tell you this. We should make comparisons. I want to talk about them all about making the right comparisons. I want to give you four things here that you want to get down that you do want to compare yourself to, but it won't be the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you. In the Old Testament, and I, I mentioned this a couple of Thursday nights ago, in the Old Testament from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, you have the kings of Israel. And uh, you, have, uh, you have 19 for Judah and 19 for uh, 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 Israel. 19 for the southern tribes, 19 for the northern tribes. Now, I, I did tell you this a couple of Thursday nights ago. I think one of the most remarkable, undiscovered studies in the Bible is to study these 19, 19 kings, 19 from south, 19 from the north, because the Bible gives you enough information about them that I'm telling you right now, and I've never had time to tweak it all, to get it all out, but I'm guaranteeing it's there. You got within those guys exactly every kind of Christian you could find in life today, every one of them. 
You've got some who have a perfect heart, you have, but not quite perfect. You have some that have an evil heart. You have some that has a perfect heart, but didn't do everything right. I mean, it's incredible. And I'm telling you right now, you've got a picture of the heart attitude of every kind of Christian that's going to walk this planet in those kings. And yet, you know what? Every one of those kings is compared to one king. And that king is David. You'll read it over and over again. He was not perfect in his heart like his father David. Or he loved God with all of his heart like his father David. David is the standard for the kings. And I'm telling you right now that David, if you know your Bible, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So by that, I'm telling you that our standard, number one, to compare ourselves with is the perfect standard, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your standard. And you can compare yourself to that. I mean, you can David is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's our true comparison. Our standard by which we should compare ourselves is God's perfect king. That's our comparison. Hey, I've seen people all of my life take inferior Christians who struggle with things in their life and then watch them compare themselves to those struggling Christians so they can look better to themselves. That's human nature at its best. Oh, yeah, man. Now, by comparison, they look better, you see. So it makes them feel better about themselves. That's never a good position to be in. Hey, listen, don't kid me, man. There are some of God's people who all their lives go around looking for dirt in somebody's past so they can feel better about their own worthless life. That's what they do. I I never could get into that. I've told you before in the Bible that there's seven men in the Bible. Noah, Moses, Abraham, Job, Samuel, David, and Daniel. Those are the seven key men in the Bible that will show you every... I mean, there's lots of studies in the Bible that are good. But those seven men are are denoted out with special mention that you can learn everything about the Christian life from those seven men if you want to study their lives. You want to learn how to walk with God? Study Noah. You want to learn how to be the friend of God? Study Moses. You want to learn how to wander for God and go where God sends you to go? Study Abraham. You want to study how to suffer for God? Study Job. You want to understand the ministry? Study Samuel. You want to know how to worship God? Study David. You want to know how to stand for God? Study Daniel. See? Those seven men are the key men in the Old Testament that will give you everything about your Christian life But I'm going to tell you right now, you dig deep enough in those guys' lives, you find a murderer, you find a hatred, you find adultery, you find disobedience, you find lack of faith, you find self-righteousness, you find drunkenness. You see, every one of them are sinners just like you and me. You could examine the best Christian man or woman you know, and at the end of the day, you're going to find garbage in their life. You'll find garbage because at the end of the day, we're all garbage. People who do that, and I've seen it all my life, wind up being the most wicked, miserable, sorriest Christians you'll ever see in your life. We do that to get an alibi to keep our miserable life going the way that we want it to go for ourselves. And you can take every character in the Bible, the wisest, holiest, godliest men that you ever found in the Word of God. Eight are great examples. Study the good things about their life. Study the bad things about their life. But don't even compare yourself to them because they're just like you. They're just like you. That's the wonderful thing, I think, about the judgment seat of Christ. 
Because in the judgment seat of Christ, it's just you and him. Somebody said one time, well, in the Bible, the day of Christ is the judgment seat of Christ, and then you find the day of Jesus Christ, and those are the two titles in the Bible. And that's true. But I tie a little different. My title for it is the day you can't blame your problems on somebody else anymore. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is. Just you and him. Just you and him. You won't be able to stand there and say, well, I I didn't do what's right because so-and-so didn't. See, right now we can blame everything we do on everybody else because we make comparisons with ourselves. But in that day, you know what he's going to do? He's going to put Jesus Christ in his hand and you in his hand. He's going to read your meter, baby. He's going to look down inside your soul and he's going to bring out and you're not. In that day, the great thing about that day is it's just going to be me and him. I will have no alibis. It won't be my circumstances. It won't be my situation. It won't be this. It won't be that. It won't be this person. It won't be that. It won't be, well, you don't understand how this person did this to me. It'll be none of that. All it will be is what Jesus did for you and then what you let everything else come in that you didn't do for him. I love that, man. I love that. Oh, Baxter McClellan was a circuit riding preacher back in the 1800s. Now, he was a preacher. And he'd get up there and he'd preach to his crowd and he'd just put the, put the fear of God in them. And he'd say to them, he said, you know what? If a two-bit, tin-horned preacher like me can get you people squirming around in your seats like you just sit down on a beehive, he says, what are you going to do in a day when you stand before a holy God and the holy Lord Jesus Christ? A lot of truth in that. You see, I do on Sunday in a very small way in a very depraved human way, what's going to happen to the judgment seat of Christ? All week long, you do what you want to do. You justify what you want to do. You get in your mind. You make your comparisons to do this, to do that, to do this, to do that. And then, and then on Sunday morning when you show up, not by purpose, but just by design. You know what the Holy Spirit of God does? He just cubicles you, man. And for an hour, you just got the spotlight on you. And he takes down everything you tried to set up Monday through Saturday. That's why people quit coming to church. You betcha. Before we're done with this, you're going to see the science involved. Yes, science. Science involved. And the whole concept of why people quit coming to churches. You're going to see that they, they won't come on Sunday morning. They don't like coming on Sunday morning because they want to do their thing all week long and they just can't come to a minty judgment seat of Christ in a very small, depraved way, human sense, that really is going to represent that day. You see, you can decide not to come here today, but you will not decide not to show up at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the day. That's the day that all the alibis are taken away for all of us. That's the day when I'm going to stand there before him, and I've already learned to do that. I don't blame my problems on anybody. I figure I get what I deserve in life. You don't hear me whining about what somebody else did uh, to this or to that that caused my problems. I don't, I, I don't whine those ways. I, I, know, I know me too well, and I know what the judgment seat of Christ is going to be. You do well to try to learn a little bit. So I'm already in training for it. Like a guy said the other day, he said, do you have a license to kill? And the guy said, no, I just got a learner's permit. <laughs> I don't have the judgment seat of Christ completely figured out, but I got my learner's permit. 
And I'm, I'm doing right now what I know it's going to be there. I'm not blaming anybody else for my issues now. I'm not blaming anybody else for my problems now because I'm in training for the day I stand before him that I won't alibi then. I'll just take my lumps. And I have some lumps to take, no question about it, but I'll take them. And I won't blame somebody else for them. I won't compare myself to somebody else and say, Lord, I wasn't as bad as that person. And the Lord will just look back and say, no, as a matter of fact, you were worse than that person. So I got that much figured out. That's going to be a great day. But you want a comparison for you every day to be like? Try Jesus Christ. The only perfect standard that we can compare ourselves to, and we need a perfect standard. We do. You know why? Because every other standard isn't perfect. I'll tell you what we do as human beings. We manipulate the standards. How many times do you see uh, down the south someplace, I forget where it was, one of the schools, I mean, half the people are going to prison because they manipulated all the federal schools' scores on their, on their tests because the students are so inept at being able to figure things out. You see, from time to time in West Point or the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy, where these people uh, cheat uh, to a great degree and becomes a, 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 a very elaborate process. Human nature will always sell itself short because that's what human beings do. So when you and I compare ourselves to somebody else, we're always going to come out better than what we compare it to. That's why you need a perfect, perfect source, you see, a perfect standard. How do we do these? Now, in the Bible and church history, if you want some good role models, there's some. Some of you young men want to learn about courage and you want to learn to develop your courage in church history, I'd study Martin Luther, probably one of the most courageous men that ever lived. The only other guy that I would put into that category is John Knox. They named John Knox Village for him. Most people don't even know it. He started the Presbyterian Church. John Knox was fearless. He's the only man who took Bloody Mary on face to face and gave her a good old hellfire damnation preaching and lived to tell about it. Courage, man. Courage. You want to get into the Bible? Look at Joshua and Caleb. They're great, they're great role models. Those seven men I gave you earlier are great role models. I mean, there's some great role models in the Bible and history. You ladies, you want to study a great woman in history? Study uh, Susanna Wesley. She had 17 children. All of them turned out into the ministry and to work for God. Now, there's a good example for you. Try Mary Slessor, missionary to India, to the leper colonies. You want to get into the Bible? Try Samuel's mom. Try Abigail. Try Noah's wife. Joan of Arc. <laughs> but never compare yourself to them. Learn from what they do good. Learn from what they do bad. Learn from the right things that they did. Learn from the wrong things that they did. But don't ever compare yourself. No, you need to have a perfect standard. Early in my life, when I, God began to call me to preach, I, I had two role models in my life, and I really wanted to be, I mean, they, they formed every aspect of my uh, aspect of an understanding of ministry. One of them was Mel Sabaka, and the other one was Peter S. Ruckman. They were two great influences in my life, but I never, never fell into the trap of comparing myself to them. Never did. I never lost who I was. I looked at the good things that they did, and I, I, I emulated them in my own life, and I, I watched how they did certain things, and I learned from that. But I always realized that they weren't me, and I weren't them, and I couldn't become them. That's one of the problems with Dr. Ruckman's school. I'd never send a kid to Dr. Ruckman's school. Really, no reason to have been here. But every kid that goes down there, not all of them, but many of them come out ruined. You know why? Because they try to go down and be P. Ruckman. And God knows nobody can be P. Ruckman. He's one of a kind. But that's what they do. They lose their identity. 
in those guys. They lose their identity. I see people go to Christian schools or they go to Christian Bible colleges and they cease who they are and they become what that school is. Never lose your identity of who you are. I, I, I just never made that mistake. I mean, I, I just never did. I realized that I had my own style. I realized that they had some good things to give me. And then I took those things and, and I stayed being me. And along with that, I studied some other great preachers, brother, in the latter part of the 20th century, the end of the Philadelphia, maybe the remnant or the residue of the Philadelphia. I remember hearing many times O.R.G. Lee, the old Southern evangelist. His great sermon that he was noted for was one of the great sermons I ever heard. Influenced my whole life was called Payday Someday. Wow, what a sermon. What a sermon. I preached you a message a couple of years ago on Zacchaeus. And uh, and uh, and that's uh, my favorite one. It's uh, probably my favorite message to preach. It's a fun message to preach. But you know where I heard that? I heard that in 1972 with Roy Thompson, the pastor of, of Cleveland Baptist Temple, came down to Canton Baptist Temple and preached on a Sunday night, and he preached Zacchaeus. I never forgot it. I still got the tape. I wouldn't dare play it. It's a cassette tape. Most of you don't even know what cassette tapes are. Uh, they're they're right after eight tracks. They're it's a cassette tape dated 1972. Old Roy Thompson preaching on Zacchaeus. Oh. I mean, it was those guys who, who formed my thinking of preaching. And I remember Harold Seitler. Harold Seitler, I remember him preaching one time on Baptist distinctives. He preached on why am I a Baptist. I'm telling you what, I never forgot it. I never forgot it. It, 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 it sunk in why I believe what I believe. And old Harold Seitler could put it to you, boy. He could preach the Word of God. All these guys are dead now. I remember hearing Victor Sears. Victor Sears, the brothers, Victor's and Howard. But I remember hearing uh, uh, Victor Sears one time, and he was preaching there again in Canton. And he was talking about the holiness with God. And they had such a unique way of, of blending what they were preaching in with the crowd. And I learned those things. Those are the things that I, I wanted to learn to do because I watch them up there. And I watch the crowd just hang on to every word that they said. I watch the crowd never lose them. If the guy walked back and forth, you know, their eyes would go back and forth. They looked like a volleyball game. I mean, it was uh, incredible. And oh he, oh, he said one time, he says, you know what? He says, I got up early this morning, and he said, I started to come to church. He said, I had to get some gasoline in my car. And he says, I pulled into a gas station about 8.30, about 7.30 this morning, and, uh, and, uh, and I get in to get gas, and I was pumping my gas, and there's a little guy there, and he was just dirty from head to toe. I mean, he looked like he had rolled in mud. And I looked at that little young man, and I said, young man, how did you get so dirty so early in the morning? He said, look back at me, and he said, well, he said, I'll tell you, I just went to bed that way. And then he took that no eyes, boy, and he says, you know what? They said, I bet that's true of a lot of you this morning. You're dirty this morning because you went to bed that way last night. Boy, he didn't preach the fire out of you after that, man. I mean, I watch those things. I listen to the way that they say and the way that they do. I wasn't this victim that, well, the more messages you preach, the better you get. No, the more messages you preach without study good preaching, the more bad message you just preach. I remember B.R. Lakin preached on the second coming of Christ. Oh, I have a message on the second coming of Christ that just go down the line, pretty much what he said. I remember in 1972, uh, Truman Dollar came out uh, to Kansas City and preached for a Bible conference. And he preached a message, are you a lot or are you Abraham? That message... <laughs> I'm telling you what, I still have those notes in my Bible. I preached that message more times than he probably ever did. It was one of the greatest things I ever heard in my life. I heard Oliver B. Green, Dallas Billington, 
Uh, John put out a, a little pamphlet back there as he does on some great sermons about the One More Night with the Frogs by U Pyle. I heard U Pyle preach that message. But I never, I never allowed myself or compared myself to them. You know why? Because every one of those guys, no matter how good they were, how great preachers, you dig deep enough, you're going to find some garbage. I never fell into that trap. Now, listening to those guys, I think, made me a better preacher. Iron sharpeneth iron. In life, you become what you hang out with. It's just that simple. I had an artist friend of mine tell me one time that he doesn't listen, or he doesn't look at bad paintings very long because he doesn't want to ruin his style. And I, and I, he, he, I understand that. He liked to look at good painting because they thought it made, it made him better artist. And I totally understand that. If you want to be a good musician, listen to good music and good musicians. I'll tell you something else. If, if, if you want to be a good musician and you want to learn how to uh, be better at what you do, listen to good music. Stay away from bongos, but listen to good music. <laughs> and if you want to be a preacher, listen to good preaching. It will only make you better. Now, the problem today is I can't think of probably four or five guys that's worth listening to. But you'll have to dig, but you can get them out there. If you want to be a better Christian, hello, hang out with good Christians. But never, under any circumstances, compare yourself to them. You're you. I like you. God likes you just the way you are. Be Christ-like. Follow the good pattern, but follow their good patterns, but never lose sight of who you are in Christ. Don't lose your identity and their identity. Don't try to be them. Over time, comparing yourself to all of these things along with the Word of God and the perfect King that God gave you and set your affections on things above. That's what you need to do. People are really funny. I love to listen to them talk. It's so People talk without any standard. I always like to play the devil's advocate. I don't always say things, but in my mind I do. Because I'm so ingrained in that standard, I just it, I have to have it for everything. And, I, and I, I listen to people all the time. A guy, I listen to two pastors talking, and the guy says, Well, he's really a good man. And I'm asking myself in my mind, really? Compared to who? Charles Manson? Well, he's built a great church. Really? Compared to what? First Baptist of Raytown? Lady told me one time about her wayward son. Well, he's really a, got a good heart. I thought to myself, really? Compared to who? Al Capone? Pretty Boy Floyd? Alvin Carpus? I mean, what's your standard? He's really a good preacher. Really? Compared to who? Robert Schuler? I, if you don't have, I mean, all that is irrelevant. To anything, if you don't have a real standard to make a real comparison by. Lady said to me one time, well, I know my boy isn't doing right, but he's better than all the other kids, I, uh, a lot of other kids I see in this church. And I thought to myself, there you go, see? That's your standard. You've got an absolutely worthless kid, and you'll spend half your life looking at some other kids who, in your mind, you see as more worthless than your worthless kid, and then you set up a worthless standard so your worthless kid is not as worthless as the other worthless kid. And at the end of the day, you're all worthless. Notice my heavy emphasis on the word worthless. That that's what people do. Take that worthless kid and put him upside alongside Jesus Christ and let's see how sweet he is. Huh? There's your perfect standard. Oh, no, 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 couldn't do that. No, no, you'll leave the church over it. I, I, you won't, put him, you won't do that. Now, here's the fourth one. I'll tell you what, some people are so stupid it must take them two hours to watch 60 minutes on Sunday night. <laughs> now here's the fourth one. 
Look at verse 13 and 14. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you, for we are come as far as uh, to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by your according to the, our rule abundantly. Now here's another one. And this measuring, uh, you measure yourself by this. When you got saved, God gave you, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, a measure of faith. And Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, a measure of grace. He gave you a measure just enough for you to get saved. Just enough measure of grace that you could understand and receive salvation. And just enough faith that you could trust Him to do it. That measure of faith is given to you, first of all, for salvation. And then second of all, you develop that, through that faith and you develop through that grace. And in time, you use that grace and faith that you have developed and stretched by the God gave you by measure to do the job that God has called you to do. That's what he's saying in verse 13. He says, according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. Verse 15 says, when your faith is increased, you enlarge others. Hey, the grace and faith God gave me 45 years ago to get saved, God now has stretched it and me to get that same grace and faith to you. At verse 13, to reach even unto you. Then you can measure yourself and compare your, where you're at with God by what you're doing or what you're not doing with the salvation that God gave you. <laughs> this one is a killer. The measure of faith and the measure of grace. You see that? The measure of a man or woman for God will only be determined by you and the comparison of, G of your relationship with Christ and the ministry you do for Him as you grow. Now that's why people come to churches, stay and don't grow and then leave. Oh, there's a science to it. When I told you a couple of while back that good people don't leave good churches, bad people leave good churches, good people leave bad churches, but in the New Testament, good people don't leave good churches. There's a science to that. I wasn't just making that up. There's a science to that all the way through the Bible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible when you look at it. That's why people come to any church, a good church, they stay, and when they don't grow or they quit growing, then they leave. And that's what you got. And they, what they do is they blame it on somebody else. They can make a comparison with this or with that. They don't like this, they don't like that, they get mad about this, they get mad about that. They never grow to the point where they can deal with the issues of the Christian life. And therefore, because they come to a church where the Bible's taught, the Bible's preached, and then they come to a point where the Holy Spirit of God boxes them in and says, I'm going to allow you to go so far, and then you're going to have to deal with this problem. They don't want to deal with it. So what's human nature do? There's a science to it. Blame it on the church. Blame it on the pastor. Blame it on you. Blame it on this. Blame it on that. And they're gone. That's how it works. That's exactly how it works. That's why people like big churches. Remember what the FBI said just two days ago when they were looking for those two bombers up there in the Boston Marathon? They hoped they had him contained in Watertown, a little town. They had the whole place cordoned off because they said if they get into the big city, you'll never find them. 
because they'll blend in with everybody and you can't find them. It's a lot easier to find who you're looking for in a small city than it is a big city. And it's a lot easier for you to hide in a big church than it is in one this size. That's, right. That's where they go. What they do. It's exactly what they do. Oh, I, I just science to it. I mean, the exposure's too great. I told the people Thursday night, I take great satisfaction in the fact that in 45, 40 plus years of ministry, nobody ever left my ministry or my churches because something that I taught that was wrong. They left because of something I taught that was right. The truth. I told you when we started our family ministry, the year of the family, I told you before we ever got there, there would be families who, I see, you can get along with it so far. You can go so far and pretend the game, and then when the spotlight comes down on something that's lacking... Well, there has to be something wrong with the church. Couldn't be wrong with nothing with my children or this or that. Has to be the church. Has to be Bob. Has to be you. That's how it works. It's as scientific as the law of thermodynamics. You just get fooled by it, you see. You just get fooled by it. And I'm telling you right now, but the measure of a Christian will always be what he's done with a measure of grace and a measure of faith to do the work of God. And that's the context of verses 13, 14, and 15 at the end of the day. The measure of yourself, measure of myself, now you want to get this down, will only be limited by you. Not your situation, not your circumstances, not your family, not your education, not your job, not your unforeseeable events in your life. Three things that will limit you. One, by what you know or what you don't know. Because you quit growing or you never growed. At the judgment seat of Christ, God is not going to hold you accountable for what you know or what you didn't know. He's going to hold you accountable for what you could have found out, but you decided not to. Second thing is by what you do or what you don't do. Ministry. What God saved you for. Taking the measure of grace and the measure of faith and reaching it out and developing it and to the measure to others. And the third thing, by your willing heart or your unwilling heart to do it. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, But let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not yet in another. Okay? Prove your own work. You can't live on my spirituality all your life. You can't live on the spirituality of the person that's discipling you all your life. At some point, you have to prove your own work, and you do that by measuring yourself to a perfect standard that you cannot manipulate, that holds you accountable, that will show you what's wrong with you, and then it's your attitude of heart if you're going to fix it or not. Oh, that is as easy as it gets. See, a strong Christian doesn't need approval of others. He knows his Bible. He knows he's doing what God has called him to do. He's proving his own work. He's proving that he's taken the grace and the faith, and he's developed that. He's proving that he understands that when God saved him, he saved him for a purpose. He saved him for a reason. He doesn't suck his thumb at home, not coming to church, or mad, or here, because he didn't get something the way he wants it. He realizes that he has something to prove, and it's his own work, and it only gets proven by you taking what God gave you when he saved you, and developing it, and then giving it to others. Strong Christian doesn't need other Christians to prop him up. He stands alone for God. He's like Christ. He's Christ-like. He doesn't worry what other people think. 
He never compares himself to other Christians around him. He learns from them. He follows good patterns of works and speech. But their walk and their work for God make him better through association. But he follows the Bible format, comparing himself and measuring his growth by the things that we talked about. First of all, Christ. Being Christ-like. Being like Christ in his image. Looking at the six things. The seven stages. Looking at all those things that are an absolute standard of measure to go by. Like a ruler that sets the standard for 12 inches. He knows that the judgment seat of Christ will only answer to God. So in this life he's already got it figured out that the only one he really needs to answer to is the Lord. In his own personal life. And he measures his ministry by enlarging others. Taking faith and grace and letting God develop them to the place that that little measure of faith and grace that God gave us to be saved, now he develops it unto you. And he takes it to other people. You see, it's easy to measure yourself by others. They're as bad as we are. It's something else to measure yourself by a perfect standard of measurement. We can manipulate the results of the first one. They get whatever answer that makes us feel good. But the second one leaves no doubt in your mind where you're at. No doubt at all. So we stay away from that. We'll continue to, con- to make ourselves compare to other people, but we'll never bring it into the Bible. Because we can manipulate everything else that's going wrong when we use other people. But boy, you put down to that book. You take those things that I've given you today. And it'll hold you accountable. It'll show you the measure of man and woman that you really are as a Christian. So remember now, in closing here, you now have a perfect standard to measure yourself by. You'll never master it, but that's okay. These standards are much like the Ten Commandments. They were never given to keep. But rather were given to show us how far we fall short of what God really expected. It's having a goal to be better every day. And if you have a goal of being better, listen to me now. This is probably the most important thing I'm going to tell you today. If you have a goal to be better every day, then you simply will be better every day. And that's what you want. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says that speaking the truth in love, that we are to grow up unto a perfect, in, into a perfect man in all things. And that man is Christ. So your standard of comparing is very simple. It's just four things. Take these four things and start making these your comparisons except instead of the people that you look at. The first one is Christ. The second one are the six marks of spiritual growth that I gave you. The third one is the seven stages of spiritual growth. I check those in your life. If you're a young Christian, I check them every two years. If you're an older Christian, I check them every three years. The fourth one is the measure of grace and faith given to us for salvation and to do the work of the ministry. How are you doing with that? Has that measure of grace and faith grown at all? Have you done anything with it? See, that's the true measure that he's talking about here. He's talking about us measuring ourselves by what we give to others. Follow that and keep those in your life and you'll be just fine. We as Christians... We're just like your car. We're just like your boat. We're just like 
your house, just like everything you own, we have to do maintenance on it. And the more mileage you put on something, the more maintenance you have to do. In your car, it's all computerized. They got you fixed. Because that annoying little check engine light will come on, or that annoying little light will come on that only they can turn off for a small nominal fee. So you're either faced with this annoying light keep coming on, or in some cases a little bell buzzer going off telling you you got to get your car fixed, and all it is is when the odometer hits a certain number, it's programmed in the computer because of so many miles for that little light to come on. So you'll come in and check it. I'm not saying you don't have something wrong, but in many cases it's not. I went in, but checked that in there, and the guys told me, oh, it was just uh, this, it was just that, it was nothing. And it was nothing. It was nothing. It cost me $75, but it was nothing, you know? So it's a thing where... The more mileage you put on, you get around three or 4,000 miles, your oil light comes on. You get around six or 7,000 miles, your check engine light comes on. You get to the place after 10, 20,000 miles, you get a low tire, your low tire pressure comes on. Maintenance comes with mileage. Now, you see, the first computer in the Bible, long before 4GM or Christ ever thought about it, is all the way back in the Old Testament with a thing called a unum and a thunum. First computer in the Bible. Where you ask it a question, just like you type things in, and it goes through Wikipedia or wherever you find it and gets all the information you want. Back then, you just asked it a question, it spelled out the answer. And you know what? That's what it does for you. You stay in the book, you do these things, it'll always give you the right maintenance program with the right mileage where you're at. It'll keep you abreast of exactly where you're at in your spiritual growth. You'll never have to worry about comparing yourself to somebody else All you'll have to do, and if I could just get half of you to do this, all you'll have to do is work at being who God wants you to be. Taking the personality that he gave you, the abilities that he gave you. Quit luring about somebody else and what they have and what you don't have. And just realize that you are are special to the point that God made you just the way he wanted you to be. Your job is to let God develop it to become everything that he wants you to be. Every head bowed and every eye closed.